0: Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and I hope you're all managing to find rhythms that work for you and your loved ones. As we move into day. I've lost count of what has, until now, been a a near-national quarantine. It's dizzying how fast the entire world has changed, and it can be very challenging to keep one's bearings and then to really tend to one's mental and emotional health. So I hope you're all taking care of yourselves. And we hope this podcast is a small part of helping you feel informed, inspired, and connected. And we're continually working to make it as good as possible. And you can help us with that by completing a survey about the podcast that you can find at the Democracy in Color website, democracyincolor.com. It takes just five minutes to fill that out. We really appreciate um, your feedback. So looking ahead, as we confront this pandemic, the dominant question we're all grappling with is what comes next in terms of reopening the country and getting back to normal, if that even is such a thing anymore. And, And as we think about that, we continue to come to terms with the escalating number of people getting the virus. A million people in the United States alone now, three million worldwide. More than 57,000 people have died in the United States alone since this uh, pandemic set in. And that's more Americans have now died from COVID-19 than died in the 20 years of the Vietnam War. And yet, at the same time, the more hopeful news is that 114,000 people in the U.S. have recovered from the virus. And our guest today is one of those 114,000 people, and she's also on the front lines of the fight and one of the first states seeking to reopen. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And I am, as always, joined by my inimitable co-host, Charlene Chang, writer, editor, communications director, homeschool teacher, PE teacher, cafeteria lady, <laughs> and podcast host. Hi, Charlene. How are you doing? And you want to introduce our guest.
1: Hi, Steve. I'm doing overall fine and I am really looking forward to introducing our guest and thank you for making my titles longer and longer each day. <laughs> I'm going to have some sort of plaque on my desk but I will need a really big desk to put all the titles. Uh, like you had said these are definitely challenging times uh, no matter what your own circumstances. is and we are doing fine overall as a family and I haven't moved into my own tent yet in the backyard, although it's starting to get warmer. So it's probably going to get more possible. And as the weeks go on, it's probably going to get more tempting, but so far we're all still under one roof. And as far as this whole distance learning thing, I've said it to a lot of friends on social media and on the phone, I am just so much more grateful for teachers. And I just kind of like, just take all my money. You know, I, <laughs> I just really feel like teachers are amazing. And now that I have to do some of that work in my own house, I just appreciate what they do every day. And I saw this really funny meme that was going around something like Twitter, where it said something like, moms are the ones who are going to find the cure to COVID-19 because we're so desperate to get the kids out of our house and back in, into the schools. So that's um, yeah, something I've been just thinking about. Teachers, thank you all so much out there. I just feel thankful that my daughter is in elementary and she's of a certain age. So it's a little bit easier. And I keep thinking about people who have babies and toddlers. And like our guest today, she has not only a toddler at home, but she had COVID-19. She went through it. She had to juggle everything else that many other parents are doing and recover from the virus. And so I'm eager to find out how she did it. And we're all really glad that she's recovered and that she's here with us today to talk to us. So with that, let's dive right in. We're joined today by Nikima Williams. Nikima is the chair of the Georgia Democratic Party, and she is the first black woman to ever hold that position. She is also a state senator representing Atlanta and several surrounding cities. And as if those jobs didn't keep her busy enough, In her day job, she is the Deputy Political Director at the National Domestic Workers Alliance. She has received numerous awards and honors, including being named one of James Magazine's Most Influential Georgians. She's a graduate of Talladega College, which is a liberal arts, historically black college in Alabama, where she became a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority. And although her husband keeps a low profile, she and her husband, Leslie Smalls, are one of Georgia's political engagement power couples. Leslie runs Georgia Engaged, the coalition of the main nonprofit organizations doing civic engagement work in Georgia. And Nikima and Leslie are members of Central United Methodist Church in Atlanta, and they are the proud parents of their four-year-old son. So thank you so much, Nikima, for being here with us today.
2: Thank you so much, Charlene and Steve, for having me today.
0: Yeah, we really appreciate you uh, making the time, Nakima. Um, I know you've got a lot on your plate. but I, I do have to disclose up front, I did, I did not know previously that you were an AKA, the, the black sorority. <laughs> and I just have to let you know that my mom was a Delta, my aunt is a Delta, my niece Courtney Teasley is a lawyer in Nashville. Actually, somebody you should meet is also a Delta. So we're just going to have to work through that part of it all.
2: What's going on with all these Deltas, Steve?
0: Yeah, well, I was not consulted in all those decisions, <laughs> but that is how it shook out in my family. Um, but seriously, we really appreciate you being here because you are on the front lines of all of this different stuff that the country is grappling with right now. But let's start with the personal side with you actually getting COVID-19 pretty early in the outbreak. So can you tell us about that? When did you realize you might be affected? And then what happened after that?
2: So we were in the midst of the legislative session in Georgia and we had our crossover day March 12th, but I remember the timeline very vividly. We had crossover day, the last day to pass a bill from one chamber to the next. And I remember sitting next to one of my colleagues when the house had shut down our page program for high school students and visitors um, could no longer come to the ropes to see us. And they were trying to shut down the gallery and the Senate was just moving along as, as if nothing was happening. And we're across the hall from each other. And I remember looking at the door and we were like, somebody's going to get sick. Everybody's going in and out of that door, touching that doorknob. And little did I know that it was going to be me the following week. So we went home and um, we suspended the legislative session that night indefinitely until we could deal with the virus. And that was on March 12th. And then that Monday, we had an emergency special session down at the Capitol and that we were there all day for eight hours and then that Monday evening I came home and I kept feeling increasingly bad and then realized that I had a fever and didn't know, but I was still freezing and had chills. And it was so bad, like nobody in our house gets sick. My husband doesn't get sick, I don't get sick. Not even my son. We couldn't find a thermometer and Leslie and I actually got a meat thermometer and we're googling trying to figure out the temperature difference and if it could be accurate in testing my um, Temperature and it actually works. If you ever need a thermometer try a meat thermometer. It's amazing. Um, and it worked and I realized that and I had a fever and it kept it, it got higher and higher overnight. Then eventually we found one of Carter's old thermometers upstairs and confirmed that it was accurate. And so the next day, all I wanted to do was just stay in bed because it was so bad. And my husband forced me to go, we called my primary care doctor. And I was fortunate that I could get in immediately to go and see him, but he didn't even have tests available. And this was on March um, 17th at this point, that Tuesday. And I came in and I saw him and he gave me a flu test and a strep test and they were both instantly negative, but he didn't have a COVID-19 test to even give me. And he told me they were expecting to get some in a few days and that he would put me on the list. But because of my age, I wouldn't be a priority, even though I could barely even walk into the office because of the shortness of breath. I'd had a fever at this point above 102 for two days straight. And... I, my body aches, I, I was in so much pain, but they would not even put me at the top of the list to be tested because in our state, we had put these false parameters out there that only people 65 and older needed to be tested. Mm. And I am quite a ways from 65. <laughs> right. So I I went through all of that. And finally, I got a call on Thursday to come in and get a test. And we drove up. It's a rooftop testing. And at this point, it was one of the only testing sites in the metro area. But it was a drive up. And there was a police car at the entrance of the parking deck on the roof of my doctor's office. And you have to give your name to the police officer. And then they check the list, move the car, and let you drive up. And then another checkpoint in a tent on the roof. And then finally, I got to the point where they did my test. It was the same exact method that they used for the flu test. And I took the test and they told me it would be five to seven business days before wow. I got my results back. Wow. So my What's, first symptom had already been like five days prior to that.
0: Wow. What's the actual test like?
2: It's, a sw- it's like a long um, Q-tip on a long stick. And they stick it in your nasal passage, but it has to go very far back into your nasal cavity. And they do that to collect whatever specimens they need to send off. But yeah, and then send you on your way to wait these antagonizing five to seven days where I'm laying at home, can't get out of bed, and I'm hearing all of the news, all of the social media about people dying and people contracting this virus and there still weren't, weren't anything that you could do to like even help you deal with like the symptoms. And I just had to turn the TV off for a couple of days because I'm like, I am fitting into one of these categories and I don't know which side I'm gonna come out on. So it was difficult and then I hear my four year old son talking on the phone he's like yeah I can't go to school because my mommy has coronavirus and I'm like actually your mommy's not the reason but so it was it was difficult and my husband's still trying to work from home take care of me because I can't get out of bed take care of Carter at the same time because schools are closed and we struggled and then I remember on week two when they tell you that you're supposed to be better and you're gonna go back out there into society. It got to the point where I convinced myself that this arbitrary deadline was when I was supposed to be back because I didn't want to feel the guilt from other people. And I ended up back in the emergency room on week oh two, God. because I just couldn't, wow. I couldn't breathe. I remember March 30th, I did a town hall, a virtual town hall, because that was the two week And I was like, okay, I got to get back out there. Um, March 31st, I was back in the ER. Like and that. like texting and setting up my town hall for the next day from the emergency room bed because I had already scheduled it and um, didn't want to disappoint people or people to think that I was neglecting my duties as a senator. So yeah. it was I, rough.
0: I think a global pandemic and being afflicted with the virus, him, is an excuse to postpone a town hall just for future reference. <laughs>
1: Yeah, you get definitely a pass. Wow.
2: But I literally, Monday night, I did a town hall. Tuesday, I was in the emergency room. Wednesday, wow. I did another town hall. So, like, sandwiched in between the two, I was in the emergency room. Wow.
0: So, and then you actually wound up quarantining yourself, if I recall correctly, from your Facebook
2: post. Yes. Um, at, at first, because we didn't know what was going on, I was isolated from my family because I didn't know if I was, like, passing it to my son. And then after like talking more with the doctor, he's like, y'all have been in too close of proximity. If they have it, they already have it, basically for being around you. And so I was in a bedroom downstairs in our guest room, our sick room. We still call it the sick room now and nobody wants to sleep in there because it's a sick room. <laughs> oh but not good <laughs> so branding, not bad branding. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so if you come to my house, you might get to sleep in the sick room. <laughs> um, but I stayed downstairs away from them and I literally just came back upstairs to my own bed last week. I was sick for three weeks straight. And after that three weeks, the next week I wasn't sick, but I could tell I wasn't 100%. But last week, I was feeling much better back out on the front lines and a little more um, sassy and back to my normal self. And this week, I'm back upstairs. And yeah, I feel I feel 100% at this point, but it's been six weeks.
0: Wow. I'm really glad to hear that. Did somebody else in the state legislature get the virus as well? Do I recall that correctly?
2: So, yeah, that's the interesting part about this, Steve. So when we were in session, our colleagues weren't very forthcoming in letting us know that they were already waiting for test results to come back oh, for the man. virus. Yeah, so we, there are two, legis- one legislator who had been so sick that he had to leave and go home on that Thursday before the special session. Mm-hmm. And he already had the virus. And then on that Monday during the special session, when people are thinking that we're going home to avoid it, he was admitted to the ICU and on a ventilator oh my God. and tested positive. And then another legislator that same week tested positive. So there ended up being five members of the Senate that contracted the virus. Wow. But two that were still coming, three of us contracted it after the fact, um, after being there, but two that were there and with symptoms and like around people knowing that they were sick. Wow.
0: So let's talk a little about the, what's happening in the state then overall, because that's kind of the, the you know the individual picture. Um, so the well, I won't I won't call him the governor, the man who is mm, in the governor. I
2: won't either. The,
0: the not governor, the man who stole the election from Stacey Abrams, but he has that title. So he wants to reopen the state, and there's been a lot of news about that um, in the country. And I guess they've actually started. So I want I wanna. Walk through that, but can you first give us the background of what was the original response in uh, back? I, I don't know if it was either February or March around shutting down or not shutting down, and what was the, what were the discussions and what were the original decisions?
2: So early on in Georgia, we continued business as usual as if nothing was happening. There was this piecemeal approach to closing down the schools, and then the metro area areas would close down schools and would implement protocols and then weeks later, the state would take action. Well, I guess it was only like a week, but it felt like weeks because at this point, the virus is spreading rampantly Mm -hmm. and nothing is being done on the state level. And so people started to call for a shutdown and shelter in place. And then eventually our governor in his infinite wisdom decided that he had this groundbreaking news that asymptomatic people could spread the virus. Now, this was after, like Dr. Fauci had mentioned this, like early on in January 31st, and our governor himself had even mentioned this March 12th, but two weeks later, it took him to come to this revelation publicly and say, oh, this is some new revelation that asymptomatic people can spread the virus, so now I'm going to issue a shelter-in-place order. So we finally got the shelter-in-place order that is set to expire um, April 30th. So, um, in t- just this week well, So now, when, did
0: he, when did he institute it?
2: Just two weeks ago
0: at the end of yeah. March. So it's basically been a one month shelter in place. So,
2: yes. All right.
0: all right. So then what's, what's, what are these reopening steps? What's, what's the rationale and what is he putting in place?
2: So now for reopening, Georgia is one of the earliest states that is reopening. And initially when he, the the challenge started, when he issued the shelter in place, he, it was so weak that he overrode some local municipalities, like a Republican mayor of Tybee Island had closed the beaches in Southeast Georgia. And when those beaches were closed, they didn't have to worry about policing, social distancing on the beach or who was going to be there. And with our weak shelter in place order, the beaches had to be reopened. And she pleaded with the governor to allow them to keep the beaches closed, to keep people safe, and he refused. Then fast forward, he reverses track on reopening the state, trying to follow what he thought was going to appease his president, who then came out and threw him under the bus and reversed and decided that I don't agree with Governor Kemp. But he opened up nail salons, massage parlors, tattoo shops. And we're like, how do you, but he said they must practice social distancing and special guidelines in doing so. And I don't know about you, Stephen, Charlene, but I don't know how you <laughs> social distance a massage. I don't know how you, <laughs> I, yeah, I get just, you.
1: Get your nails done without somebody being close to you. where they going to use exactly. a really, long, really long stick?
2: And so my husband is a little snarky at times and he's on social media and he's like, um, I can't wait to see Governor Kemp's picture of his daughters getting their manicure and them holding hands going to eat at th- the local restaurant in Athens because he also opened up restaurants for indoor dining, movie theaters, bowling alleys. I'm like, these are not places that people were just amping and ready to go back to. And even today, my family's in Alabama, and I got an update from my sister asking me like about these places in Alabama that were reopening. Even in Alabama, which we tend to like have this thing about we don't want to be like alabama doesn't want to be worse than mississippi and georgia doesn't want to be worse than alabama <laughs> mm-hmm. but reading the guidelines from governor Kay Ivey, she's keeping nail salons hair salons entertainment places and specifically mentions bowling alleys she's keeping those places closed but yet wow. we opened them back up last friday wow. and yeah it's it's absurd
0: so what's the, what do we know about what's the state of things right? in terms of testing and infections and even deaths and whatnot? What, what kind of data do you have and what does that data show?
2: We, we have not even reached the So the federal government has these thresholds, phase one, phase two, phase three for reopening. And Georgia has not met the testing threshold for phase one. Eventually, I would love to get there. Charlene, like, I want Carter to get out of the house and get some exercise and be around other people. So I want more than anybody. I've been in this house for six weeks and I want to be back out there, but we haven't met the phase one threshold. And then looking at just the demographic numbers where we, as of today, we had like 54% of our cases in Georgia were black people. And Mm. we just were not at the level of testing in minority communities. We're not at the level of care. We know that people still don't even have, I just got the bill back today from my doctor's office of getting the strep test, the flu test, and that was with my insurance discount. I had to pay $269 that I just had to pay today. I got the bill in the mail. And so people, we haven't expanded Medicaid. People don't have healthcare and so are avoiding going to get tested and then we still have these arbitrary thresholds where you need to be showing symptoms in order to get tested. So we just we still are very far off from meeting the threshold from phase one. I don't know if you guys have seen these charts by medical experts that have shown like the date that each state should be ready according to scientific data which I don't know what our governor's following but it's not scientists but Georgia's reopening date is not until June. And
0: so what are you saying to people in terms of your constituents and the public at large? What are you advising them?
2: So I um, just launched a coalition with some other local elected officials and just got Congressman John Lewis and Congressman David Scott to join on just yesterday. And we are launching a stay home, stay safe program. Our districts here in Atlanta we know that metro Atlanta is more than half of the state and so we launched this coalition here in metro Atlanta to convince people to stay home and stay safe and um, we were on a call today where we're going to one of the largest shopping areas um, in the metro area to make sure that we have face mask available and we have hand sanitizer to give out to the people who are not listening to us to stay home and we, even today, I got an alert that Simon Malls is reopening some of their properties across the country. And two of the malls are the largest in the Southeast, Happen to be in my Senate district. So I am gonna be working on a campaign around that this evening so that we can continue to get resources to the public, like masks aren't available. And so you're telling people you can reopen if you meet these guidelines, but they're fake guidelines because you don't even have, people don't even have access to mask or access to hand sanitizer, and we the state is not doing anything to help them.
1: Nikima, I just want to say thank you. I've just been listening, and, and I'm so moved by hearing what you and others are doing, and thank you for doing that work on behalf of your constituents and, and modeling you know, what can be done in the face of a, a governor who is not working with you, not on the same page at all. You had mentioned some statistics around the Black community. Obviously, this has also been in the news a lot, the disproportionate number of Black people and Latinos around the country in different areas were disproportionately being affected by the virus. And, you know, you had mentioned the concerns of African-Americans, concerned about the state reopening too soon. There was a great article in the Washington Post on April 26th by Race Sebald, Andrew Batran, and Vanessa Williams. And that article was titled, For Black Folks, It's Like a Setup are you trying to kill us? And the subtitle was Fear and Mistrust in Rural Georgia as Governor Kemp urges the state to reopen. Uh, The article features a woman in southwest Georgia who has already lost two relatives to the virus. She has a sister on a ventilator and has concerning symptoms herself. And she says that she can't get a test to see if she has the virus. And the article says there's a quote in it. And the quote is, even now six weeks into a national emergency with death toll still climbing in southwest Georgia and her kin sick from the novel coronavirus. If she wanted, though, she could get her hair and nails done since the state's governor invited some businesses to open on Friday. So I wanted to ask you, Nakima, what are you seeing and hearing? in terms of how people are feeling in rural Georgia and how prepared do they feel?
2: It's, it's heartbreaking, Charlene, um, listening to that because I have heard that same sentiment from so many people. I have a friend who her family is from Albany. Albany had one of the highest per capita rates of death rates from COVID-19 in the country. And I mean, it was one of those hot spots in Albany, Georgia is, there's no easy way to get there. Um, there's not, you are not gonna get on a Delta flight and get off in Albany, Georgia. So you if you're there, you're there because your family is there or because you have some specific reason to be there and they were hit very hard early on. I had a friend who called me and she was like, Nikima, please take this serious when I was sick, asking me to don't take the recovery lightly and to go back to the emergency room because she'd already lost two relatives and had a cousin who was released from the Phoebe Putney Hospital down in Albany. And two days later, she collapsed and died from the virus. And I'm so, we, wow. she's thinking that it was because Phoebe Putney has needed hospital space and the bed space. It's in rural Georgia has been hit hard with hospital closures. I did a press call with a doctor from Clay County, which is right outside of Albany. She's the only doctor in that county. And there's two surrounding counties that don't even have a doctor. And Dr. Kenzel is operating out of an old Tasty Freeze location because that's how bad the health care already was in that area. And to add something like this on top of it, where people just aren't able to get the care that they need, the governor announced this week that he's going to do some mobile testing to allow mobile testing units to travel from the Albany area to Augusta, but there there are still so many restrictions on who can get the test. I represent metro Atlanta, so we got testing set up through CBS Pharmacy two weeks ago at Georgia Tech, but that is downtown. But I also have these outlying municipalities where I represent a total of five cities and access to getting there and access to how do you know where to get the number from to call people just don't have the means to get there and if you can it's you have to jump through hoops i keep reminding people how difficult it was for me as a sitting state senator to get a test i have great health care i have a texting relationship with my primary care physician and It took me a long time and jumping through hurdles to get a test and my husband still couldn't get tested. So I can only imagine what people are going through outside of Metro Atlanta, where they don't have nearly the medical infrastructure that we have here in Atlanta.
0: Yeah, and I just want to highlight too, I think that it's important for people to realize that this is the real world fallout and manifestation of all of that anti-Obamacare. We're not going to take Medicaid money. We're not going mm-hmm. to expand Medicaid so that we don't have this health infrastructure. And I do want to highlight too, is that that's something I don't think is getting enough attention is there's very much a dynamic happening with all this reopen or not reopen and these protests of this undercurrent of, well, it's just those people getting sick. And so this lack of empathy and this real desire to be willing to have people get sick and die because it's those people who aren't actually like us really seems
1: to be expendable expendable
2: Yeah. i mean and if you look at i've heard a lot of people say look look at the places that are opening up these are places where yeah governor kemp isn't going out here going to the bowling alley going to the barber shop and i mean our people are hurting and still waiting for the stimulus checks or the economic recovery funds to reach their mailboxes And so people are hurting, and I get it. It's hard decisions when you're trying to make sure that you can continue to feed your family that's home 24-7. Carter is in the pantry more than a little bit these days, and so we're trying to keep everything stocked here and getting back out there and risking bringing the virus home. We've had our local school district, Fulton County Schools. I was on a call with them, and they were shutting down the food delivery program because they had volunteers to deliver the food for children who ordinarily wouldn't have meals at home, but we didn't have masks to keep the workers safe. So they had to shut down some of the food delivery sites because they just didn't have the equipment to keep the volunteers safe. So, so many different dynamics going into this where we, if we can't even get masks for workers to deliver food for children, for school children, then how are all of these businesses that are reopening up like the major malls in Atlanta, they're supposed to open and have everybody wearing a mask, but we can't get masks for the food deliverers for our children.
0: So looking forward, right, because I think that's one of the things that we're, everyone's grappling this for, what is the, what is, how does this resolve? How does this move forward, right? They're in San Francisco, they just extended the stay at home another month through May. From the experiences you've had, what do you see as how and when you will be able to actually Reopen.
2: We need broader testing. We need testing in communities that ordinarily don't have access to health care. Putting all of the testing at medical facilities doesn't help people who already don't have access to the healthcare industry. So we need to ramp up our testing. We need it to be expansive, um, especially in areas where we know communities are hit the hardest. We need to make sure that if we're gonna be reopening these businesses, that at the door, we have an opportunity for people to get masks. I was reading an article about um, in Taiwan, how every resident gets so many masks per week and you basically fill out this form. And so they know who's already collected them and we we have doctors that can't even get masks and yet we have other countries where every resident is getting an allotment of masks and i don't know i've tried to buy masks for constituents and um different like amazon and other sites are like you have to be affiliated with a hospital or be affiliated with a government agency and so there's even hurdles there if i just want to get things to give to my constituents so that they can have access but until we have the personal protective equipment that we can get out to everyone and until we can do the, the level of testing to show that our numbers are on the decline, we need to be following suit um, as y'all are out in your in the Bay Area and staying home. And right now we're just not there.
1: Nikima, I, I know that we touched upon the issues of the challenges of different vacuums of leadership now in top places. And I know that's really a question and concern on everyone's minds because we're just not getting the answers and the kind of leadership from Washington. And I know that you and I and Steve all know a leader that many of us feel we can trust. Stacey Abrams of she was having an interview recently with Meet the Press, it was this past weekend. And I'm just gonna play a quick clip of her answer because I thought it was really very clear and succinct in addressing this very issue of what we need now and what we don't have.
0: How would you launch a national testing strategy if you were running the federal government right now?
2: I think what Congress has put in place, the investment in testing equipment and funding for our frontline workers, especially for our hospitals is critical. But I would also be encouraging states like Georgia and the other Southern states and Midwestern states that have refused to expand Medicaid to do so immediately. Part of testing is making sure people trust that they can go and be tested. And right now there's inadequate equipment and an adequate strategy. We should increase production. We should make certain it's not simply the testing that's available, but the mechanics, the swabs, the vials, and that we are funding people on the front lines to do this work, to put themselves in harm's way, to make sure we can test, trace, and track.
1: So Nikima, this crisis has affected so much of our world and our society and how we function. This is an era where Georgia is right in the middle of a key challenge facing much of the country in terms of how to hold an election that is safe in the time of a pandemic. And my understanding is that you at uh, Georgia, they've twice postponed the primary election. And I wanted to ask you if you can give us some background and how was it decided to postpone the election?
2: So I was, I've been a part of these conversations as the chair of the party at every step of the way. And there have been some things where fortunately we've had our leadership in the Secretary of State's office listen to me, and there are other things where I am making sure that I call him out every step of the way. Early um, in March, when this first started, I had to make the decision of canceling our state dinner, as it um, was the weekend before our original presidential preference primary on March 24th, and we postponed the dinner, which was March 21st, and then I started looking at all of the other things happening across the state, and I didn't want me to challenge someone else for um not moving forward and keeping our people safe and so i proactively reached out to our secretary of state to have a discussion about the plans around our march 24th election and what we needed to do to change them because the election was only two weeks away and so there wasn't enough time to mail ballots out or to get people to vote by mail so we came to the conclusion that the best thing to do was to combine the March 24th election with the already scheduled May 19th primary election. We combined those elections, fought with the Secretary of State's office to make sure that every vote that had already been cast would be counted. They wanted to cancel all of those votes and have people vote again. There would never be an option in my book where it's okay to cancel someone's vote. So we fought back and won that battle. Move forward thinking that we were going for it with the May 19th primary, combining the elections, and we got. 6.9 million registered active voters got um, ballot applications mailed to them. This has never happened in the history of the state of Georgia. We have a very low rate of voting by mail, around How did, how did that percent. happen,
0: um, Did people request them, or did people decide they were going to send them out? How did that happen?
2: So that was a discussion that we had with the Secretary of State's office as well. How do we make sure that when we agreed to move the election, we came up with parameters around why we would agree to stand with him and say, it's a good idea to move this election from March 24th. One thing was the vote by mail for the May 19th primary, because we knew that there was no certainty that this virus would be under any more control in May than it was in March. So they agreed to that. Initially, they wanted to only mail to voters 65 and older. And... Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, what about somebody like me who has already contracted the virus? That's right. Yeah. At home. I, so you want me to have to go to an in-person polling location? So that leaves a lot of people out of this. And so that's why we had to get rid of this narrative that only people 65 and older were getting sick. And I was, anybody who would listen, like, like I said, even from the emergency room bed, I was telling my story about, you can get this if you are not a senior citizen, if you're not sickly, like this virus is affecting other people as well. And so eventually, the Secretary of State's office, um, after multiple rounds of conversations, agreed to mail to all active voters. We tried to get it mailed to active and inactive. We didn't win that battle, but we moved forward with the 6.9 million registered active voters in the state. So everybody started to receive those, but then they didn't add postage. And so now it is, how do people these ballots turned back in? So we're still, there's a court case that the ACLU filed on behalf of Black Voters Matter. That was, I watched it through Zoom on Friday and there hasn't been a decision there yet to determine if the postage is considered a poll tax.
0: It's interesting that the Secretary, Secretary of State's Republican. Is that correct?
2: He, he's a Republican. And if you take him out of the ears of Brian Kemp and our Republican Speaker of the House, he would do the right thing every now and then. But he gets with his little Republican cronies, and then forgets that he represents all voters in Georgia, and not just the Republican voters.
0: Well, but if it's all—it's all a balance, right? Because in, uh, in in Wisconsin, the state Supreme Court realized it was too dangerous to beat in person to hear the case. Met by Zoom to decide to send people out to vote in per- in person. So,
2: <laughs> well, we and think. that's what I'm thinking now. Like the governor has decided that it was too unsafe. He then the governor and the speaker, because they don't want continued voting by mail. They don't want us to continue to be able to educate people and people to get used to this. So they wanted to postpone the election again from May 19th to June 9th. So that people would vote in person or be more likely to vote in person and not get in a habit of voting by mail because our Republican speaker said in an interview that the more people that vote by mail, the worse it is for conservatives and Republicans. And so he doesn't want this. So they wanted to postpone the election again. They got their way, but because they said it would be unsafe to vote in person by May 19th, but you're opening back up the state. So I'm like, you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. Either it is safe for us to go back to do this as usual and just wear a mask, or we need to be staying home. And But they've postponed the election, but you're stopping the shelter in place order on April 30th, Brian Kemp. And so he's just all over the place for whatever benefits him and Republicans on that day. And they're making decisions that have nothing to do with people being safe.
0: So this is going to be one of the big fights for the fall right as well now. And so talking in Congress around putting in place some voter protection said, I don't think people realize how precarious our democracy is at this moment. I mean, this president, if he could get away with it, would just cancel the whole election. So it's just really, I think, a very precarious situation in terms of them trying to exploit this moment. So as you look to the fall, these lessons you've had from what you've dealt with so far in Georgia, what do you want to see and what are you going to be fighting for to make sure that the elections in the fall are fair?
2: We are fighting to make sure that voters are still being proactively instead of the absentee ballot applications that were done for the primary, we like to see all voters proactively just mailed their ballot. Mail the ballots and voters can get the ballots back in. We won't postage to be included on all of these ballots. We want secure drop boxes to be at locations for people that don't want to mail their ballots but want to drop them off. And these are easy fixes that we think the state should plan for anyway because right now Georgia has no excuse to absentee voting. So who's to say that a majority of people aren't going to choose absentee voting? Right now we have a backlog of people trying to get their ballots mail back out and get them processed because they didn't plan for people to, even with the election delay, they haven't planned for people to get their ballots returned to them, hoping that you just won't choose that option. And we have to stay vigilant and know that we have to track the way that votes are counted now because there's not, they're not gonna be on these machines. And so we're looking at protocols in place for us to, to, to continue monitoring how these votes are counted once they're cast and making sure that they get out to voters The other piece to this is figuring out local counties and how they get the funding to increase the staff capacity. Because right now the state is not helping them in this and local counties are hurting and trying to do the best that they can. A lot of it isn't malice on their part. It is just, they don't have the resources, especially in some of these small counties. So we have a, a long ways to go. I am glad that I am back up healthy and running because I got a lot of Republicans to push back and fight with.
0: Correct. So before we go, I want to touch base briefly on the fall election in that I don't think people fully realize, and I wish the leaders of the Democratic Party would better appreciate the significance of what can even happen in Georgia this fall. To stay
2: the out. leader of the National Democratic Party, because the Georgia Democratic Party realizes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Th- thank you for that correction. Yes. The, yes. The National Democratic Party leaders <laughs> are not properly... So to take back the Senate, the Democrats need to net pick up a three Senate seats. There are two Senate races in Georgia this year. And this is all coming off of the, you know, Stacey's historic candidacy of 2018, where there was a higher Democratic voter turnout than there had ever been in the history of the state of Georgia. So can you tell us, well, first of all, let's start with Reverend Warnock. because we when, when we were doing our Democracy in Color How to Help initiative, we had lifted up his candidacy. Could you just tell us briefly who he is and what his race that he's running in is?
2: So we have, as you mentioned, we have two Senate seats here in Georgia. One has a traditional primary to defeat David Perdue, our sitting U.S. Senator. And the other is a jungle primary that um, Democrats and Republicans will all be on the ballot in November. And it is to fill the seat that was vacated by Jenny Isaacson, where Brian Kemp has appointed Senator Kelly Loeffler as a, just a seat holder because we're going to take that seat back but we have Reverend Raphael Warnock who is running in that race and as seen as the front-runner raised more than even all of the Republican candidates that are running in that seat this past disclosure period wow. and he's the pastor of historic Ebenezer Baptist Church which is America's like Freedom Church it's the former Church of Dr. King and he comes from a very progressive background. He was the chair of the board of the New Georgia Project, registering voters and standing up for people. He was, has been a part of our Moral Monday movements where we were advocating for Medicaid expansion. And he's just been on the front lines in a number of different issues. So we are looking forward to getting out there and telling our story across the state. Right now, he is out polling Republicans that are running in this race, Senator Leffler, the Republican senator, who's the, the placeholder. She has a formidable challenger from the right and um, Congressman Doug Collins. And so they're battling it out on their side and we are going to deliver two U.S. Senate seats. I think for far too long, Georgia has been left off of the map for battleground states. And I am talking about battleground Georgia every chance that I get to uplift the possibilities that are here. Stacey paved the way for us to get out there and show that we have voters who've been staying home because they haven't seen anyone on the ballot that was talking to them in a way that resonated. And Stacey changed that. And she gave us a new playbook on how to win elections here in Georgia. And that's exactly what we're gonna do in November. And I plan to, as chair of the party, to continue to tell our story and advocate on behalf of Georgia Democrats because we can deliver 16 electoral college votes and two U.S. Senate seats, and we're going to flip the state house because I'm tired of Brian Kemp being able to have him do whatever he wants to do here in this state. I'm a realist, though, Steve, so I know I'm not going to be in the majority in in the Georgia Senate, I will keep my minority status in the Senate, but I'm going to make one of my colleagues the Speaker of the House over there in the Georgia House. That's great.
0: Yeah, so I just wanted to put an exclamation point on that because I think that a lot of politics gets uh, reduced to personalities and say, like, oh, well, Stacey was great, but now moving on. Stacey is and was great, yet what propelled Stacey, what she was able to do, was to build upon the demographic revolution in Georgia to take her to the point where she did actually win that race. But those voters are still there. That infrastructure is there. The volunteers and activists are there. And then you have a very inspiring progressive candidate in Reverend Warnock, as well, who really should be much more of a national celebrity. And I think we have to try to make that happen as well going forward. And we've got, which you know, bears saying, right, a, a state chair in Georgia who really is building upon and trying to institutionalize a lot of the work that Stacey has done.
1: So, Nikema in the light of the fact that you had all this time in quarantine, we figured you'd probably been maybe checking out some TV shows or movies. So is there anything that you can recommend to us and our listeners?
2: Oh, the good fight. I don't know if you guys Mm. have ever watched this It's a spinoff of the good wife, but the good fight, I just finished Mm. season three and the first two episodes of season four and one of the last episodes of season three, they mentioned black voters, senior citizens being pulled off of the bus down in Georgia and talk about voter suppression. And I was like, wow, I remember this actually happening with Black Voters Matter. And here it is on like one of my favorite shows on TV. So can't wait to watch this Thursday's episode. Very cool.
0: Yeah, no, that's actually uh, my one of my wife's this is his favorite shows. So I
2: movie. love that show. <laughs>
0: yeah. So the, the show of the shows that we're watching is the show Little Fires Everywhere that is based upon this novel by this Asian-American woman, Cindy Ng, who grew up in Shaker Heights, Ohio, which is like adjacent to where I grew up in Cleveland Heights, Ohio. And it's got Gary Washington, and Reese Witherspoon, and it's just really very well done, very deep. My wife Susan keeps talking about how the depth of it really just takes her to this whole different place. And for me, it's like having grown up in that actual environment with a lot of it's just really really very resonant to me and so i'm really enjoying it it's really well done and i highly recommend it to people
1: i want i want to check that out too and the writer by the way her name is celeste ing and um oh, I'm sorry no no it's a it's, all right. it's just a great book i want people to who like the show should also check out her book support writers of color uh we as a family we watch a lot of kid-friendly movies and my daughter has been interested in watching harry potter movies as well as this other movie that i really enjoyed that's written by J.K. Rowling. It's called Fantastic Beasts. And it's just great to watch that because it has nothing to do with politics. <laughs> it's just, you know, fantasy. And it's nice to just get, um, get your mind off everything and have fun with a fantastical movie.
0: All right. So that's all the time we have for this episode. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. We'd like to thank our special guest, uh, Nakima Williams. You can follow her on Twitter where her handle is at Nakima Williams. It's N-I-K-E-M-A Williams, all one word. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing, or if you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets. And also, again, it would really help us out if you give us feedback by completing the survey on the Democracy in Color webpage, democracyincolor.com. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang and April Elkier, recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. And we'd like to leave you with a little bit of this awesome rendition of the song We Shall Not Be Moved by the Georgia French Choir, which was tailored as a message to Georgia's leaders trying to put peoples in harm's way. Until next time.
2: Shall, shall, shall not, not, shall not be, moved. be moved, shall not be moved. Tell him again, ah. y'all no sir Kim. Uh-uh. no sir, kin. Ah, ah, no sir no sir, Kim. we Shall we not be moved, shall not be moved.